The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word uh, and open with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 17 through 24 today. We're not going to get through the entire passage today, but we're going to get through half of it today, 17 through 24, but I want to keep it all together and then preach the second half of this message next week. So Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, while you're turning there, let me ask just a few questions. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt underdressed? Isn't that an awful feeling? Apparently, you didn't get the memo. You show up somewhere wearing whatever, and you, everyone else, though, is like super well-dressed, and, and you're the only one there, and you feel like such a slouch. You feel like everyone's looking at you. Why didn't you get the memo? And it just kind of ruins your night. Have you ever been somewhere, been out, and spilled something on you and had nothing to change into and then had to stay out? Isn't that awful? That's an awful thing. I can remember years ago taking a group of of, uh, students, a church group, and fortunately it was students, so it really didn't matter because they had spilled all kinds of stuff on them too. No offense to students, but like we were just all in one big thing together. But I'm riding on this bus, and, and none of their spills were as bad as mine. Uh, we're riding on this bus going all the way to New York City, and, uh, and I've got this cup of coffee, and I'm so like, just, man, I'm loving my cup of coffee. And all of a sudden, the bus does that, right? And this cup of coffee, all of it goes right here. And, and it was awful. I had to go into like a store and buy a jacket to cover this thing up. If you spilled something, y'all looking at me like you've never, are you the neatest people on the planet? Like, this has never happened to you? My wife carries a Tide pen in her purse just for me, Right? Um, you ever seen someone who tries to pull off an outfit that they just can't <laughs> or shouldn't? Uh, maybe, maybe an older person who dresses too young. Maybe a person who walks into a department store and sees the mannequin and, say, and, and likes what's on the mannequin and buys everything on the mannequin and tries to pull it off, but they don't have anywhere near the same body shape as the mannequin. And so it's just like, Ooh, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it goes. Bathing suits at the beach. My wife has said for years that there are certain bathing suits that should not be made in certain sizes. We'll just leave that one where it goes. Yoga pants. I know this is the thing right now, but please, is all I'm going to say. Like, please, like, there are some things that just don't need to be, Right? Men, there are very few of us that can wear tank tops. And I say us like I'm one of them. I'm not one of them, right? There are only so many people that can wear those. Well, Paul, one of the things he says here to this group of the Ephesians is he's writing to them and he spent the first three chapters laying out doctrine to them and theology to them. And now we've turned into this practical section of the book. Chapters four through six are very practical outworking of this theology and this doctrine. And the first, one of the first things he says to them is change your clothes, change what you're wearing. So just to give you a little bit of background on this, Paul's writing to those that are formerly Gentiles who were outside of the people of God, but this, he, he's writing to Gentiles, though, who, who have been converted, not to Judaism, but to Christ. And so 
there are certain ways that they might live and dress in a culture that would not be befitting of them. They, they still live in that culture. That culture is very much still living like Gentiles live, but they shouldn't live that way any longer. And there's a parallel throughout this passage for us that I think is, is pretty clear, that all of us who are believers were once also outside of God's people, and we lived like it. We lived like the world. We lived like the people around us. Many of us, not that we want to go back and drudge up those days or, or, or relish those days, but we can go back and we can tell you about times where we were very much outside of God's people and we lived in a world that didn't care anything about God. And we liked it there. But now that we've come to know Christ and we've been converted to him, that's not where we live anymore. The culture around us is still there. And they're still saying, oh, come do this or look like this or be this certain way. But Paul here is saying to those Ephesian believers and to us today as believers, change your clothes. The old man has to go. Put off the old self, right? And so today what I want to do is I want to look at this issue of changing what we are wearing, putting off the old self and putting on the new. That's not who we are anymore. I don't care what the current fashion trend is or what the culture dictates is right and what is wrong. There are certain things that are becoming of a believer and certain things that are not. And that's Paul's point. And so I want to walk through this passage with you today and get as far as we can. And we'll pick up next week and and, and finish it out. So Ephesians chapter 4, begin with me in verse 17. The Bible here says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the, truth, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So let me just point out some things that I think... Um, God would have us to hear this morning. I want to point to these things and let you know that God declares these things to you. So here's here's the first question that I would pose to you is, what was it about the way the Gentiles walked that so irked Paul? I mean, is this just a matter of preference for for him? Is is he looking at the Gentiles and, and is he just saying, man, I just don't like the way they do life? If you keep the analogy of clothing, because he says to them later, put off the old man, put on the new, it's the, the, the language there pictures taking off a garment and putting on a garment. Is, is Paul looking at them, is this just a, a preference thing? And he's saying, I just don't like how they look. Is perhaps this may be a, a prejudice thing or a, or a racial thing. I mean, Paul comes out of this Jewish background. He's Jew of very Jew, Right? Is he looking at these Gentiles, is this still a racial divide for him? And this is an issue of sin in his life. Is he looking at them and saying, don't walk like those Gentiles walk? Or is this something more? 
The text reveals to us that it is definitely something more. In verse 17, we are told there, he doesn't tell them. Notice the urgency with which he says, he says, I'm telling you this, but it's not just, these are not my, only my words. The Lord also, I testify in the Lord. I'm, I come under his authority. He's giving this to you. And then he uses the language, you must. So there's urgency here. He's, he wants them to hear this. And then it finishes out there in verse 17 by saying that their walk is futile. That it is, it is pointless. It is wasted effort. 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The, the way they walk, it's not, a, it's not a preference thing for Paul. It's not a, it's not a racial prejudice thing for Paul. It, it's not any of that. It's, it's that the way they're walking is pointless. There's a way in which the world walks without God that they believe that they are making progress. They believe that they are okay. They believe that they are headed in the right direction. But Paul here points out to them, you who are no longer there, don't walk that way because that way gets you nowhere. It's pointless. And then he he begins to describe what this walk looks like. And, and points out here the, the futility or the pointlessness of their walk. And there are, I think, five different characteristics of this walk here that I want to point out to you. And I think there is a progression here, and you'll see that as, as it comes along. The first one is, and it's not first in the list, but in verse 18, there is a hardness in their walk. Verse 18, the very last part of verse 18 says, due to their hardness of heart. The reason I list it first is because the whole sentence structure says that they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts, right? And so these first two are because of this one. So we start here with the hardness. There is a hardness that's there. This word in the original language meant uh, it was used for a stone that was harder than marble, um, before their conversion, he's, he's writing to these believers, these former Gentiles outside of the people of God, and they've now been converted to Christ. And before they were converted, his point is, God didn't move you. Spiritual talk had no effect on you. It was, it was, it was like taking water and pouring it over a stone. And there's no water being sucked up into that that stone that's harder than marble, it's just running off. It's just splashing off of you, and you are not moved whatsoever. They were stones to spiritual things. They were stones to God. They were unable to be moved by God, and they were unwilling to be moved by God. This points to the fact that that not only could they not come to God, but they were willfully rejecting Him. That the truth that they had received, that they were then pushing it away. I was in Kentucky uh, a few weeks ago, but uh, at one, one of my trips there uh, up to the seminary, uh, I saw a bumper sticker on the back of the car. And the bumper sticker, I took a picture of it, should have thrown it on the screens, but here it is. The bumper sticker just right there on this car in front of me uh, said, religion is a crutch for people who can't think for themselves. And I thought, my pride swelled up. We were at a stoplight. I thought about, I think I got time 
I could probably get out of my truck and go up and have a conversation with this person with light. And I thought better of that. And then the sinful, depraved man inside of me was, 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 had these thoughts like, I'm so glad that you have a brain and that you thought enough to tell me that. You know, I, I would have never come to that on my own. But this is where the world is without Christ. They look at God and they say, God is just this figment of your imagination. You don't need him. You've made him up. He's a crutch for you. You can't think for yourself. Man, get a brain. The Bible tells us that in Romans 1, that this is exactly what people do without God, is that they suppress the truth that has been given to them. Do you know that every single person on the planet who has ever lived or will ever live or is currently living has at least some measure of truth that points to God? We we woke up this morning. We have air in our lungs. Our hearts beat. Our brains have these electrical impulses that allow us to have thoughts. We look at the sunrise. We see the sun go down. We see seasons. We interact with with our loved ones. All of these things point us to the designer who has given us all of these things. But what happens is to the person who is without God, not only are they they alienated from the life of him, they're dead in him. That's Ephesians 2.1. But they are willfully, in a culpable way, rejecting him and saying, no, no, no. I see that truth, but I'm going to reject it. I'm going to suppress it and push it down because I just can't allow myself to go there. It's like the, the check engine light on your dashboard. How many of you, your check engine light is on on your car right now? How long has it been on? Average of like probably six months, a year, you know? David's hand's still up. It's been on forever, right, David? And he's a mechanic, so he's not worried about it. But here's what happens is the, the, the person who is outside of God is so hard that God has thrown up this check engine light all over the place, everywhere you turn and everywhere you look, and they just look away from it and they ignore it. There's a commercial on TV where the lady actually takes a sticker out of her kid's book and she covers up the check engine light so she just doesn't have to see it. That's humanity without God. They reject the truth. They become hard. The second aspect or or characteristic of their walk is that they are dark. There's a darkness in their walking. And I'm I'm using, hear, hear me out, time out. I'm using the they, realizing that my heart is this way oftentimes too, that I need the gospel every single day, okay? So this is not me like I have arrived and all of the people out there, we don't like them. That's not this at all. I'm simply having to distinguish between the person who is in God and the person who is outside of God. So the person who's outside of God, not only do they work, walk in hardness, but also in darkness. And it's, it's the hardness that leads to darkness. It's the, darkness is the direct consequence of rejecting the truth. If you reject the truth, if you see something that's obvious, it's true, and you say, I don't care, then don't complain when you stub your toe. Don't complain when you break your arm. Don't complain when life gets tough for you because you've been given the light, but you've rejected the light, and now you walk in darkness. 
Romans, 12, or Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, what's happened is God has given every single person on the planet some measure of revelation of Himself. Now, there's this special revelation that if you are in Christ, you received in the gospel, Right? But every single person on the planet has been given some measure of revelation, this this, uh, general revelation of who God is and what He's like. And when when someone takes and says, nope, not going to accept that, they find themselves walking in this darkness. They stumble around in darkness. They grope in darkness. And keep in mind that there is a darkness that can almost seem like light to them. And I don't know if it's It seems like light, or they're trying to convince themselves that they're in light. I'm walking in darkness, but I don't want to admit that I'm in darkness. I want to think that I'm walking in light. You look at how many different philosophies are out there, and um, how many different um, actors how many different religions and, and different things are, are pervading that industry, the media? There's darkness that's there. Their darkness keeps them from per- perceiving and understanding God's glory. John 3 verse 19 says, The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And it goes on, verse 20 goes on to say that they don't want to come into the light because they love their evil. They love their evil deeds. And so rather than coming into the light, they they say, no, 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 I'm going to reject the light and I'm going to continue to walk in darkness. So there's this hardness that leads to darkness, which then leads to deadness. Verse 18, the middle of verse 18 says that they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Think about what Paul is saying here. When he says there that they are alienated from the life of God, isn't that just another way of saying that they are separated from life? That they are dead spiritually. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead. Right? This is what it means. That they're not physically dead. They're very much physically alive. People without God are walking around, they're enjoying activities. In fact, sometimes it seems like they're enjoying life, maybe a little more than you are as a Christ follower. Maybe revealing some some sin or idolatries in your life. Man, they're very much alive. They're physically going after it. But spiritually, the Bible says they are dead. That, That the disease of darkness metastasizes so far that it severs them from the life of God. That it just takes its fingers and just works itself all through their person. And they're dead. The Bible tells us that anyone without God is dead. Even though they're very much physically alive, they're spiritually dead. Which leads then to sensuality. Sensuality in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Sensuality has, has to do with the senses, has to do with feelings, 
It has to do with pursuing. This, if you think about it, this is how Satan often tempts even those who are believers, is he comes to us through our appetites, through what we would see, through what we would touch, through what we would taste, right? And, and this is where he attacks, and this is where those without God are held sway, that they are, they are, they've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality. The word callous, though, is pretty interesting, and it means there, it's, it's, it's a word that means past the point of feeling. If, if, you, if you do any work, and, and I don't do a whole lot of physical labor, I'm a pastor. Most of what I do is, is uh, you know, in, in the Bible, in, in commentaries, in books, with people. I don't, I don't put my hands on a whole lot of shovels. My wife would probably say, yeah, maybe, maybe you should put your hands on a few more shovels around our house. We've got some work that needs to be done, Right? But I do know this, that if, if I work long enough, I go out there and I begin to take up that shovel or this past year when I, when I built a, a pad for our, our camper to park on and I was having to drive that rebar through, through those uh, uh, railroad ties and, uh, and using that little sledgehammer and man, it was just hard, grueling work. It was the hottest part of the, the summer. It was just, it was nasty. It was, it was really, really tough. I got out there the first few days, and I'm driving this rebar, and, man, it's hurting my hands, and I'm just absolutely killing my hands, and, and they're bleeding, and I've got blisters there. But what happened eventually? Develop those calluses. Those calluses developed there so that I can then take up that hammer, and while the labor was still tough, it didn't hurt like it used to. And this is what the Bible is teaching there about a person who has hardened their heart to the truth of God and walks in darkness and is dead separated from God and begins to very much alive physically, then give themselves over to sensuality. They can do that because they have moved past the point of feeling. Literally, what this is is pointing to is there is a point where a person becomes numb to what they should feel so that they spend their lives in search of feeling something that will scratch that itch. You and I were, were created to find our satisfaction in God alone. But a world has rejected him and walked in deadness and darkness and hardness so long that they have calloused themselves to him and they no longer can ha- find that desire or that satisfaction in him so they're seeking and groping in darkness for something that will satisfy them. They've given themselves over to sensuality. This, this word callous could also refer to a loss of the ability to feel shame and guilt. Man, are, are we seeing this in our culture today? We seem to be a culture that, where, where nothing is off limits anymore. So hardness leads to darkness, which leads to deadness, which leads to sensuality, and sensuality then leads itself to evil deeds. The second half of verse 19 there says, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. For the unsaved person, the person outside of God, their desires are unrestrained. They've, they've given themselves over to sensuality because they've become past the point, the point of being able to feel. And so for them, the next step is, well, I'm not just going to dream about these things or leave this at the point of desire. I'm now going to actually act on this. 
And I'm going to become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice there, every kind. Our culture is quickly becoming an unshockable culture. We watch the news, we, we, we read our news on the internet, whatever, however you get your news. We come across story after story after story that, I mean, should absolutely just abhor us, appall us, make us drop to our knees and pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But we have become numb to it because our culture is, is, is given over to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of evil. How often do we hear in our culture things like, this is just who I am. I mean, you want me to be happy, right? I was born this way. I've got to be me. And for some, our mind goes immediately to those who who struggle with same-sex attraction when I say a phrase like, I was born this way. But I got news for you. That's not a phrase that's only being used with those who wrestle with same-sex attraction. That's a phrase that's being used by anyone who wants to justify whatever evil desire they are greedy to practice. This is what this is why Paul has an issue with the way they're walking. This is not an issue of preference for him. Like, like you know, I, I don't preach in, in in a suit and tie. That's obvious by now. And it's funny because I'll, when I go to a funeral, I wear a suit and tie. And notoriously, I have people there who are church members, and, and I love it. I'm not, I'm not complaining at all. But I have church members who are there who say, they'll say, you look so nice. Or they'll joke and they'll say, I didn't recognize you. Who are you? You know? And I don't have an issue with that at all. But that's not what this is with Paul. This is not Paul preferring that they would wear a suit and tie. This is not an issue of race or prejudice with Paul. This is Paul looking at them and saying, you are no longer hard to God. You are no longer in darkness. You are alive, no longer dead. You can now no longer... Give yourself over to sensuality because there is not a callousness in your life. You have been sensitized to the gospel. And therefore, you cannot be greedy to practice every kind of of impurity. So when Paul tells them that they must stop walking the way that the Gentiles do, my, my next question for you is, is this just moralism? I mean, if, if what we just looked at was licentiousness, verses 18 and 19, that, that hardness, darkness, deadness, uh, sensuality, and, and, and evil deeds, if that's licentiousness and Paul says, no, 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 don't do anything there, is Paul merely swinging all the way over to the other side and preaching moralism? In, in other words, is this Christianity, is, is it just another religion of do's and don'ts? Can the gospel be boiled down to just behavioral improvement? Is following Christ just one great big New Year's resolution? 
Lots of people assume that it is. That Christianity is really just a list of things that I should stop doing and things that I need to start doing. And that's what being a Christian means. And Paul says, no, it cannot be that. It can never be that. He's not preaching moralism. Moralism, I'll say to you, is a message that we very easily gravitate toward, don't we? Let me give you just a few reasons why we gravitate toward moralism. Number one, because we can wrap our brains around it. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do, and I can get my brain around it, and I can do it. Just tell me, Pastor, tell me what i got to do. And we saw this all throughout the New Testament. When you read through the book of Acts or you read through where people would get saved at the preaching of the apostles, one of the things they would say is, what must I do? See, we gravitate here because it's, we, can, we feel like we can get our mind around it. Here's the thing. We think it would be easy if we could just hear what to do, but it's not. The entire Bible, the entire Old Testament was, was a, a giving of principles and laws, what is good and what is, what is evil, not, not because God thought, well, you know, you, I, I, I got faith in them. I think they can do it. I think they can handle this. No, God gave us the law so that the law would become a tutor for us that would show us that we can never achieve the law, and therefore we must be led to Christ. Another reason why we're drawn, we gravitate toward moralism is because we are born with this this conscience, this moral conscience, uh, we're born with it. And so from the earliest days that we can remember, our our conscience has been with us and our conscience has, has talked to us when we were about to enter into something that was wrong. It speaks to us uh, when we're guilty, our conscience does. It compels us. Our, our conscience for all of our lives has compelled us when there was something right. I mean, we've all been in a situation where someone was just, I mean, it was a, it was a tough situation and you were there and your conscience just motivated you to step in in that moment, right? And so this is another reason why we're drawn to moralism because our, we've lived with our conscience our whole life. But this is wrong and this is right. I think another reason why we're, we gravitate toward the teaching of moralism is because so much of the system that we live in is based on it. I mean, this is how we parent. We reward good behavior and we punish bad behavior, right? I mean, I'm not saying moralism is wrong. Don't hear me teaching that that morals are wrong. I'm not. God has given us morality. He's given us laws for good reason. They restrain us. And they compel us, right? But this is built in. I mean, you think about teachers and coaches. Reward good behavior, punish bad behavior. Bosses, you do what your boss wants, you're often rewarded. I said often because you're not always rewarded. But if you, don't, if, if you don't do what's expected of you, then you're going to be punished, Law enforcement, this is the case. Even even peer pressure. 
teenagers and, and, and before it was preteens in school, there's this pressure on you. And, it, and it's just another form of morality. It's just another starting point of morality. It's, it's not starting with what God says is right or wrong or what your parents say is right or wrong or what your teachers think is right or wrong. It's starting from the point of what your peers think is right and wrong. And there's pressure on you to do what is right. And if you'll do what's right, you'll be rewarded with popularity and likes and and all of those things, right? But if you don't do what's expected of you in peer pressure, then, man, you will be rejected and punished, right? This is the system in which we live. So I think for these reasons, we're drawn to this issue of moralism. As a pastor, it would be so much easier if I could just stand up here and say, don't do this. Now go do this, because that's easy. But moralism pervades our culture under the guise of, get this, being raised right. I read a, a blog post by Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, uh, on this issue of moralism. And there he equated it with, with this term that we often hear is, well, they've been raised right. I don't know what's wrong with them. We raised them Right? Right? That's what we say. For the most part, raising them right is a very good thing. I'm not telling you just, man, shirk your your parental responsibilities. Let those little heathens just be heathens and we'll just, you know, we'll get along, right? That's not what I'm saying. You're put there to teach them right from wrong. We need this. Morality restrains us and it motivates us. It is, for the most part, a very good thing. Here's what I want you to hear, though. While morality is a very good thing, it's not the gospel. Listen to what Moeller said. The point is clear. This is what parents expect. The culture affirms and many churches celebrate. But our communities are filled with people who have been raised right but are headed for hell. We have switched the gospel with morality. We sit here in smugness and pride and we think, well, you know, I'm no longer walking in hardness, darkness, death, sensuality, and evil deeds. Hmm, look at me. And we somehow think in our self-righteous smug that we have saved ourselves. Paul's not advocating here that a person can save himself with enough willpower. Paul is not swinging from this licentiousness over here saying, oh, don't do this, just pick yourself up and do this. That's not what Paul's doing. He's not saying if you have enough willpower, then you can just walk right out of hardness, darkness, death, sensuality, and evil deeds. No, instead... Instead, Paul is is saying to us, that cannot save you. It will not save you. Galatians 2.16, he wrote, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So if neither licentiousness or moralism is the answer, then what is? Now, I've got got a four-step answer to this. It's 11.37 on that clock back there. That's why we're only going to deal with step number one today, okay? I tell you that because it gives you hope. 
I read this morning on Twitter that there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. So I understand this. But I also tell you this because I don't want you to check out. If I ended the message right here, I would condemn you. I would set you up to fail. So step one of how, how do we not walk like the Gentiles? How do we change our clothes? Step number one is start with the gospel. In, in Moeller's blog post, he said something like this. I'm going to paraphrase some of it. Licentiousness produces sinners. Moralism only produces sinners who are potentially better behaved. But the gospel transforms us into adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings. I get this from our passage. I'm not just simply leaving our passage and going off. Paul here wants them to understand that he's not swinging from licentiousness to moralism. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, but that's not the way, that's not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The reason I say step number one is start with the gospel is because this is where Paul starts. This is where all of the Bible starts. It all points to Jesus that we can't be good enough. There are two parts here too, starting with the gospel. We often think that the gospel is only this message that we hear and we respond to and we're saved. But here, Paul gives us a more complete picture of what salvation is. Number one, it is hearing, verse 21a, assuming that you have heard about him, there needs to be an initial response to Christ. There needs to be a moment of conversion. There needs to be this moment where you hear the good news that you can't achieve righteousness for yourself, but Jesus has on your behalf, not only has he achieved righteousness for you, but the, the wrath that you had coming for you, the punishment that should be yours, he took for you. There's this moment when you hear that. Listen to me. There's this moment when you hear that that you need to turn from yourself and trust the Lord Jesus. Piper calls this the hospital of Jesus. His point is, we, we look at this list of, that, that is us. We don't somehow escape this licentiousness by being moral enough because in our trying to be moral enough without God, we only further put ourselves into licentiousness. Sins of self-righteousness and pride and arrogance, Right? So what happens is we look at this list, this this hardness, deadness, uh, darkness, deadness, sensuality, and evil deeds. We look at this and we say, I'm sick. I, I can't fix myself. There's a hospital that you can go to. It's the hospital of Jesus. 
Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible is replete with over and over again imploring the sinner to turn from the sin and put their faith in Christ alone, to come to the hospital of Jesus. Perhaps you are here today and you have never done that. And I'm going to probably speak to a couple different people in that category. Maybe you're here and you're just here, at, you just popped in today, you came with somebody or you're just visiting or whatever, you've never really been in church very much, but you heard the gospel today, the hospital is open for you, come to Jesus. The other group though is perhaps maybe someone who's been in church, maybe even this church for a long time and heard lots of sermons and sat through lots of lessons and all of these things, but you have never placed your faith trusting in Jesus alone. The hospital is open for you. That sign out on the interstate that tells us the ER waiting time, right, at the local hospital, there's no waiting time here. Jesus has come. The second part, though, here of salvation is not just hearing this initial response to Christ, but he says, you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So it's not just hearing, it's also being taught. Piper also calls this then the school of Jesus. There's the hospital of Jesus that we come to and and we are made well, but once we are made well, then we are eager to enroll in the school of Jesus and we want to sit under his teaching. We want to soak up everything that he has to say. I was thinking about this just a few minutes ago as, as we were, Matt and Ethan and I were praying ahead of time. And I was thinking about people in, in, in the Bible who displayed this. One of the ones that came to mind was, was Mary. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Jesus is coming. Martha, man, Jesus is coming. This house is a mess. We got to get this place cleaned up. We got to fix a meal. We got to do all this stuff. She's running around. Finally, she looks for help from her sister Mary. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening intently, wanting to soak up every word that he said. Martha looks at Jesus and said, Tell her to help me. And Jesus said, She's where she should be. One of the ways that I think you can know that you have heard the gospel is whether or not you are eager to sit under his teaching. And I don't mean simply just sit in a sermon. I do mean that. But whether you are eager to say, God, I want to know everything that you would have me to know. I'm eager to enroll. I want to sit on the front row. I don't want to slouch in the back, Lord. I want to get it. I want to get it. I want to get it, Lord. Teach me. We see this in the disciples. They followed him. They walked in his dust to pick up every word that he said. So maybe you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord as your Savior. Then hear the gospel today. Stop hardening your heart to him. It only leads to darkness and death, sensuality, and evil deeds. 
Instead, turn from all of that and come into the hospital of Jesus. And if you then have done that, then follow it up with saying, Lord, teach me. Read his word every day. Ask him, Lord, be my teacher. Plug into this church. Let him, let him lead you and teach you, and you will see your life be changed. It's the first step in putting off the old man and changing what you're wearing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it is true. Lord, I thank you today that I stand here not as a man who has saved himself, but as a man who is squarely and wholly dependent, completely, utterly relying on your grace. Lord, I stand here today as one beggar telling other beggars where there's food. So God, would you please glorify yourself, God, and lead your people to yourself. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity. I'll be on the front row. I'd love to give you an opportunity to speak with me. If you are here and you need to talk with someone about making him savior of your life, then I'd love to be here. Love to be that resource for you. We're going to sing. Perhaps you're here and and maybe you've realized that, yeah, you know you're depending on Christ, but you've kind of gotten away from that and you've began to kind of just linger in the old clothes a little bit. Maybe today you just need to come and pray and just confess that to God and just repent of it and say, God, help me to just trust you alone. Help me to come into the hospital and your school and let me learn from you and be changed. Whatever it is that God is calling you to today, I'm going to ask that you would respond in faith. It may be hard. In a minute, it's probably going to be hard. There's nothing magical about walking this aisle and coming to a preacher. There's there's no special power that I have that I get to convey on you in that. But I'm telling you, the devil will try to talk you out of it where you're standing or sitting. It may be hard, but I just want to beg you, implore you, come speak with me. Let me begin to lead you to the place of hearing and responding to the gospel of Christ. As God leads, you respond. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.